Welcome to the Treat the Cause podcast with Dr. Greg Emerson, physician, professional athlete, dive instructor, yoga instructor, wilderness survival instructor, and biohacker. Combining lessons from history with medicine from the West, East, science, tradition, and spirituality to optimize health, performance, and longevity. Good morning or good evening. Depending it's on good evening here. Good morning to you. <laughs> Fabulous. In the, in the land of coronavirus and all the shutdowns, it's day. Right. Welcome to day. <laughs> Welcome to day. Another day. <laughs> it's, uh, Another one. It's Dr. Greg Emerson on the Treat the Cause podcast and YouTube channel. And I'm super honored to be here today with two guests. One is with me today. His name is Pauline Modi. And she's a, uh, well, I'm here with, I'm a giant Neanderthal ex-professional athlete here in the presence of two artistic geniuses, one being a musical genius. Pauline's a lead singer and musical director of the world music band M Zaza. And I'm, we're also honoured to be here with Patrick McMurray, who many of you will know is from his books and his world and Guinness Book Records and the world of oysters. And I'll talk to you about whether you still own a restaurant or not in Toronto. But Patrick's kindly joined us from Toronto in Canada, country that I'm very close to. I have a lot of friends in Canada after working for two years at the University of Alberta in the... No, Amer- was that in Edmonton, yeah? Yeah, in Edmonton. Nobody Edmonton. in Canada knew why I went to Edmonton, but I loved my two years there. And the U of A hospital was very accommodating. And I instantly got adopted by multiple families because it's such a friendly country. And went to some Oilers games and, and really had a really good time. And spent some time and a lot of time in Vancouver. But yeah, I really enjoyed my time in Edmonton. So Patrick, Beautiful. Paddy, known as Shaka Paddy. So let, Shaka let's run, the handle, yeah. before we get into the meat and potatoes of oysters, let's talk about you a little bit because I'm fascinated about your career. So okay. in, fact, in fact, how I got into oysters really was I'm really only a recent convert to oysters. And in fact, I started off about four years ago when I went to a restaurant with a good friend and she was obsessed about getting the oysters at this restaurant and said, I said that I wasn't really into oysters and didn't want any. And she said, well, you know, how can you be so into health and not, you know, have a fondness for oysters? So I started that night and have really developed a huge love of oysters as a food and health source and a sustainable source of essential nutrients since then. And then I discovered your book recently. I'm writing my own book at the moment. And uh, I was doing some research on oysters and omega-3s. And I discovered your book, which mm-hmm. The Oyster Companion, which, is, which I love the book. I think the Thank book you. is a beautiful size. It's beautifully written. It's poetic in places. It's full of beautiful photos, which, which take us back to another time and, and a magical time. And I really like that. And there's a quote in there that I want to read out, which I love, which kind of represents the book, I think. And I've used this quote in much of my writing. And it says, Oystering for the first time is an awakening. Ocean molecules embedded in our DNA, calling us back to the water like a siren's enchanting song. We are all drawn to the ocean, and luckily the oyster brings the ocean to us. There is nothing quite as complex in its simplicity as an oyster, and it can take you back to the sea in one quick sip. The oyster is a snapshot of the location from where it came 
and the day it was plucked from the sea. No other food can transport you more easily to a location via taste. Close your eyes, open your mind, and let the oyster take you there. And I think that's fabulous. I quote that a lot, and then I'm writing, and I go, damn, I wish I could write stuff like that. Poetic <laughs> flow to it. And I've kind of, it's inspired me to write a little bit more creatively. And of course, the other thing that really got me interested in oysters, in particular watching your Instagram feed the other day when you were barbecuing them, was yeah. uh, seeing, I think it was in the first series of The Chef's Table, where they did a documentary on, help me out, Pauline, so I pronounce it right. <laughs> Francis Malman. Francis Malman, the, the uh, Argentinian. The Argentinian. Okay. I've seen that book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's fabulous. His book is on fire. And nice. he was all about cooking outdoors mm. on open fires. And it was such a beautiful, I watched it several times, snapshot of, of a man's life who used a lot of art in his cooking as well. And my whole purpose in life now is teaching people that true health comes from rediscovering a connection with nature's rhythms. And I think this is really why I want to talk to you about because oysters fit into that really well. So let's start off talking to you. I want to talk to you about some of your accomplishments first. Oh, and the other thing was I read Mark Kurlinski's book, The Big Oyster. Kurlinski, The Big Oyster. Yeah, about, about the history of New York. Yeah, yeah, it's a yep. book. And we'll talk about that later on. But that was yeah, Kurlinski is great. So tell me, yep. first thing, you've got your own li line of oyster knives. I've got these little, these little bitties little over bit here. About, a little about your... The, the funny little thing with this thing, this is where my degree in kinesiology. Now, I, I teach culinary and hospitality at, at, at a college here in Toronto now. So I talk about food more than I do about my kinesiology background. But I got into oysters by happenstance just working in a restaurant that specialized in oysters back in the day and while I was working there I noticed that the, the oyster knives were not built properly to fit these they're always sort of little round things uh, round with zero grip so I would always shape the handle so I, at least I get finger grip but in my kinesiology classes of uh, biomechanics and ergodynamics I needed something that really fit the hands so I ended up making, I got one here. I ended up making this thing. I'm going to dive down for a second out of uh, an epoxy putty. And I created a pistol grip, a pistol grip shape. Voila. Here's a lump. You can see that's one of the original shapes. And what it does is it fits my hand exactly. So I made this thing, started working with it. And it was, it's part of occupational therapy. OPMPT was something that you, you transfer more kinetic energy from the body to the tool that you're using, no matter what it is, whether it's a tennis racket or a hockey stick or a lacrosse stick or an oyster knife, if it fits better and there's zero slip in the hand. So I started making these. And one day, lo and behold, there's an oyster lover at the bar, my bar restaurant, Starfish, back in the day. And the gentleman happens to say, what's that? And I go, that's my oyster knife. He goes, so tell me about it. So I, long stories of kinetics, kinesiology and whatnot, but it's got two axis points here and here. It allows you to lever open the oyster, it creates a fulcrum, 135 degrees between tip and tail. I can actually open an oyster with three fingers. Using less force, you can open oysters more safely. And it doesn't slip in the hand ever. So if it's a right hand or left hand, it just won't slip because of those access points. The gentleman happened to be the owner of this company, Swissmar. He was dining with his friend who was the uh, president of Swissmar, uh, of uh, Swiss Army Knife and Victorinox. 
He says, so do you want to maybe put the knife into retail? I go, I got nothing better to do on a Friday night. Sure, let's do this. <laughs> and so that was like five, six years ago. And so we've, we've done this. I've got another blade here. And then I've got, I've got this little thing here, which is just straight stainless steel back to the sustainability idea. I wanted to do something less plastic, more singular, punch it out of the stainless steel. Fishermen like to use this style of thing as well because it's just flat steel. It still fits in the hand. It's kind of a neat little thing. So you have friends in prison, you can put it into a cake, you can bake it, you can put, you know, there's little things that you can do with it that's a letter opening, it's fine too. So there's lots of different things that you can do with the stuff. That's, I, I got into it that way just through the, the competition end of things. And that goes back to my kinesiology degree, competition and, and athletics. You know, oysters is a, uh, is, a, is a competition very loosely thought of in that sense. And there's world championships in Galway, Ireland. So I, over the years, I got to the point where I won the Canadian championships. I've been to Galway and then I won the world championships utilizing, you know, this knife here and away we go. So it was kind of a, a thing the way it slipped along. And then the book came after that and Guinness book came after that. Once you get the Guinness book, people just call you all over the place. Do you want to come and break your record in my, on my TV show in China and Italy and United States? So I get to fly around, but because of the book as well, I, I know more about oysters in the way a sommelier looks at wine. And that's sort of how I try to talk to people about it. Because in North America, here in Toronto, we can use five different species of oysters in North America. And each one has a different base flavor range. And bringing it back to where it comes from and the subtle nuances, that's the details based on species first, then its location, then it's what the farmer or the fisherman did to that oyster. So there's lots of different nuances that you can get with it. And then you can put sauce on it. Then you can cook with it. So it just got really deep. And although the book is good, what's under what's between the ears is ridiculous right now. I'm, I'm working on, <laughs> I'm doing some sort of lecture series that, that really defines it into regional aspects. You know, I've got five different growing regions in Prince Edward Island alone, which is what you would call a Malpec oyster here in Canada. So it gets stupendously detailed, and I think eight people in the world would actually be interested in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we would be. Pauline, Pauline had a question for you yeah. about the story. You sure, yeah. Obviously, with your knives. I've got two, actually. So I'm wondering, is everyone now in the championships using your knives for a chance to... God, no. No, no, no. <laughs> and this, this is the beautiful part of it. Every oyster shucker says, I can build a better knife. Nah, I, I kind of like this one better. And, or they use, they use the standard oyster knives. When they get this thing, they don't understand the concept of it. And I've tried using my knife and giving it to pro shuckers. And they're like, sometimes they're like, yeah, you know, it kind of works. Or they, I just don't understand it. They go back to old dogs, new tricks type of thing. They still don't understand it. Where I find it goes into is the retail world. So people want to open oysters at home. And they've had a very hard time with it. I've had, uh, you know, my Uncle Bill had arthritis and his hands were like this, all gnarled and they can't really hold anything properly. But when you can get a hold of a knife like this, it fits in the hand nicely and they can actually lever open the oyster with no force. They come back and say, why hasn't this been invited, invented before? I'm like, uh, I don't know. I am 963 years old. I'll get to that point. But, you know, it's, it's something that, that uh, shuckers will, will utilize their blades and modify blades, too. That's how I started. I took a stock blade and I modified it. So usually, and this one I've designed so it's sort of easy to open right out of the box, right when you open it up and away you go. So there are some people who are using it. I don't see anyone yet in the, in the competition circuit yet that is doing it usually on competitions i will i will offer prizes 
So I'll take my knife and I'll give, I'll give prizes out to, to contests, but I will award it to 10th, 9th, and 8th. Top three gets money, whatever. You know, I don't want to see the top. I want to see 10th, 9th, and 8th move up to 7th, to 6th, yeah. to 5th, like, uh, with the yellow knife and the whole works, you know. So I, I've got my weird concept on how I award these things, and we'll go from there. Yeah, I like that. I was um, yeah. in your book reading the story about how you accidentally, in a way, gave the great Anthony Bourdain, your, um, your knife and your best knife. Yes. And I was wondering if you'd, uh, you know, made a better knife since. <laughs> I actually have not made a better knife since. <laughs> I tweak blades or whatnot, you know, and I, I, I've got these ones, my little short blade. I'm quite enamored by the, the, the short stumpy blade now, but as far as blades and handles custom made, that was the, the last pretty well, the last one that I actually made. And, I'm looking at the date. I actually have the, the menu here. This wow. is the menu that I made wow. for, and this is so funny because I, I, I've stored everything away. I've closed my two restaurants. Starfish has been closed since 2014. Uh, Kaylee Cottage, my Irish bar, has been uh, closed about a year and a half now. But I went into storage. I got all my books beside me because I'm sitting in my office, which is my mudroom with the shoes as well. Uh, <laughs> and so this is where I run my school rooms. But I found this. That's the menu that I made for Anthony Bourdain. I'm going to post it up onto the online. I have to write the story. His birthday's two days from now on the 25th. And so I created a, a five-course tasting menu when he came in. So you've read the story of why he was coming up to do a book signing. And he actually took the bait. The bait happened to be one of my knives. So I made this knife. And I like one of these, right? But, you know, the best one I had ever made. And I said, okay, I wrapped it all up with a little tag and the whole works and I gave it to the writers. The, the writers wanted Anthony Bourdain to come with them on an oyster tour of Toronto, which you wouldn't think is a great town to go for oysters because there's no ocean here. We got very good at importing because there's no, there's no local water. So there, we got very good at importing. We can get Irish and French and American and Canadian and now New Zealand oysters as well, which are fantastic. So we get oysters from all over the place. And so we said that in the Met letter. I said, dear Anthony Bourdain, if you come up to Toronto, here's my oyster knife. This is who I am. When you come up, I will custom fit you, make a knife for you personally, and then I'll teach you how to use it, and we'll do an oyster tasting. So we didn't think it would really go anywhere, but like two weeks later, the writer said, yeah, he's coming. I'm like, <laughs> what? So... Andy Bourdain's coming to your restaurant and I'm a younger kid and I'm just sort of freaking out going, Oh my God, what am I going to do? As most chefs do when you have a, a big name chef coming into your restaurant, you feed them, you kill them, you do everything that you can. You light fireworks, you're doing all this type of stuff. And so I created this and it was a, it's a five species oyster tasting menu only. There's a few clams and intermezzos of scallops and really there's oysters with no sauces. There's no actual anything with it. There's drinks that go with it, like I have a sip and startini, cucumber gin and pickled cucumber that go with the West Coast oysters. And when I post it up, you'll sort of see it. It's sort of like it's an, an arrangement of oysters that he can't get in New York City, can't get in the United States because Canada has a different importation rule and regulation. So the French oysters, the Irish oysters, everything that I was showcasing here, I knew he could not get in New York City and he knew that. So I'm like, yes. So he came up and we had a long conversation. And the one picture that's in the book, you can see he sort of looks kind of scared. He's like, because this kid is just talking way too much and I kind of want to go. And that's, that's the best picture that we got out of the whole thing. This is before phones had picture cameras on them and all that type of stuff. It was, just, it was just sort of totally organic at the time. And he was going on a little bit of a tour. So he just ate and then 
went. It was kind of cool. Had a couple of beers, had a couple of the drinks, just went through the oysters. We had a good little time. Great stuff. But I've always done that. I'm going to, I'm going to rewrite that story and put it up into an Instagram thing bought for, for the 25th, two days from now. Well, that's a great story. And sort of say that it's other than oysters in Canada, you and I have a love of knives in common as well. And this is one I made. Yes. An 11 inch Bowie Damascus. Lovely. Damascus and knife, which I use. Uh, made? I made for the, in the, for use in the wilderness, but. Nice. It's too nice to use in the wilderness. And I imagine being 11 inches long Bowie that it's, it's not, it would do for oysters, but I'd be struggling to keep up. In with a pinch, it. you know, you got a beautiful little tip. The tip on it is great. Right. I, I would go nice and slow, 11 inches away. You know, <laughs> I do have a passion for knives. It's, you worry about saying that to, to people, oh, I love knives. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of, but then you, if you say, oh, I'm a chef though, and they go, oh, okay, yeah, you're fine. You or you, you're, you're a wilderness, but okay, that's cool, that's fine. You just don't walk down the street going, hey, I love knives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we talked about your degree in kinesiology, helping you design yep. the handle. We talked about you winning the world championship in Galway Island in 2002, the only Canadian. Is that still true, the only Canadian? Still true, still true. We try every year. There's great oyster shuckers. I still go to contests once in a while, and the, the kids who are doing real well these these days, uh, Eamon, Clark, and a lot of other Canadians, they've, they've tried. They get up into the, the top three. They'll get up into the top five. They have not hit the one, though. It's a hard thing to do in the long run, but in the end. And I've had, I've had people try to break the Guinness Book as well. I've had I've had the Guinness Book record for most oysters in a minute since 2002. And even the Guinness Book people are like, nobody else has broken it. I go, I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. Some people try. They email me. They go, we're going to try to break your record today. Wish us luck. I went, uh, good luck. And then they come back eight weeks later. I go, how did that go? They go, we did. No, we, no. And it was 30, no good. That's 39 in a minute. 39 eight, in a minute. That was a Gordon Ramsay show. 8,840 in one hour with Team Canada, and you That's personally right. did 1,114 oysters in an hour. In one hour, yeah. And that's both things. It's part the tool, because I could hold on to the thing without worrying about it, and then it's also the mindset of how do you break down the, the motion of what you're going to do. It's your sports sciences. You have to open up an oyster, and you have to do a lot of them in a much short amount of time. So I came up with a good plan and it worked and it was kind of it was totally fine off the cuff you were saying the other day that's an art tool you can't just smash them open if they flip over that's a default if you break the shell that's a default as well there's a lot of a lot of points when you're shucking oysters there's a lot of points when the customer wants to eat an oyster they don't want to have any grit they want to make it look it has to look nice and a lot of time customers don't know what looks nice as far as oysters go because as soon as they get it they're putting the ketchup on it and all that type of stuff, you know. Um, but I take it back to the basics and the anatomy of the oyster has to sit a certain way. At the World Championships, if you flip the oyster, now I know it's an, uh, it's an Australian and, and I think New Zealand style of shucking as well, where you open it and then you flip the oyster in the shell, showcasing the fat belly upwards. Mm. And that makes the oyster look beautiful, guaranteed, every time. Big, fat, plump, always. And when you leave it right side up, it's very flat. You'll say, oh, it's, it's not as good. But it's exactly the same oyster. Um, but when you open it perfectly without marring the top of it, that's like extra points. So that's why they, they garner the oyster without flipping it at the world championship level. Uh, for catering, 
flipping it, it's, it's a lot easier. People can just slide it out of the mouth and it all works. We talked about you working with Smith Swissma with your own lives. Uh, you're also an oyster and help me out, Pauline. An oyster. Sommelier. Sommelier. He's using this my is French a name. This is <laughs> it's a, you're doing very well. Are you French? French? Yes. <laughs> she's, she's French. She's from Paris, so she's she's got fabulous. Cheating. You, you do well. have you do have that Parisian accent, which we can tell the difference between our Quebec accent and a couple different ones. So that's great. Yeah. No. It's it's a, a sommelier. When I describe oysters, and I've been doing this since the late, and I always tell my students in school, the late 1900s, I was talking about oysters in restaurants. People would ask me, what's the difference between the East Coast Canadian oyster and the West Coast Canadian oyster? I go, about 5,000 kilometers. Uh, other than that, there's a different flavor range. East Coast is salty sweet. West Coast, you got ocean sea salt, sweet cream, melon, cucumber. And they're like going, what? What are you talking about? I go, try it without any sauce. Close your eyes. Think about it. And they had it, they had the two oysters beside each other. And they look at me, they go, man, you're talking like that, like you talk about wines. So I go, it parallels, it parallels so much with the wine world. If you look at the basic nuances of the oyster, when, and whenever you look at recipes, it's the oyster. It's not the, the oyster. The is a species, as a, as a style. There's many different species all around the world. They'll have different flavor ranges. And I think in my book, it's page 54 or something, there's a flavor wheel. A tasting wheel. I wrote, here you go, 52. So that's a tasting wheel for oyster, like you would have for wine or beer or spirits or anything else. So when I was talking, people were saying, you talk about it like a sommelier, that is now a terminology. There's very few people that will use that. They want to use that word, but it qualifies if you start talking about an oyster sommelier. And I'm trying to design now a, a sommelier program using my knowledge of education and uh, lectures and series and creating something that someone could get certified with as a certified sommelier. Again, the same eight people would be very interested in doing this and using it as a, as a tool to get into restaurants or whatnot. But it's, it's there because the flavor of an oyster from New Zealand and an oyster from British Columbia and an oyster from Concao and an oyster from Ireland, all being the same species, of course, Austria Gygus oyster will have different subtle nuances based on the region that it comes from. It's like Pinot Noir grape. It's going to be different from different regions. When I, when I was reading about that in your book, it reminded me of that great movie uh, whose name I can't remember about the two Mer American men who go on a big night. So no, Pinot, it's the Pinot Noir one. Is it what I, I know that one. They, that go, on, they, go, on his, they go on his um, bachelor uh, party, just the two of them, and they go to Santa Rosa area of San Francisco, and they, he yeah. meets this beautiful woman, and she's talking about how when she drinks wine, she just doesn't drink it, she takes a sip and closes her eyes, and she can kind of get a visual picture of the weather where the grape grew, and she wonders about the people who picked the grapes and what was going on in their life. And she developed the story around each wine that she had. And I got that image when you talked about oysters that you did the same. It was, it's not it's, just about eating oysters. It's a poetry. It's an art. It's a painting about the, the conditions that the oyster grew it's in. It's an experience. Yeah. It's a full experience. I, I, I had in my, my restaurant, Cayley Cottage, the Irish bar, I had just landed my uh, Scottish oysters for the day. And these are called uh, Stranruhr oysters. They come from Loch Ryan down in Stranruhr on the, on the, uh, uh, down south of Glasgow. 
And I heard three people on the bar. They just showed up and ordered some beers. I go, where are you from? And then she goes, uh, she goes, she's from Scotland. I'm like, hang on one second. Popped open these oysters. Didn't tell them a thing. I go, just have a smell and try these oysters. What do you think? She goes, oh my God, it smells like home. I go, they actually come from Stranraer. She goes, I'm from Glasgow. And so she had them tears. That proverbial movement of emotions in the movie Ratatouille. I keep referencing that from Disney when the, when the critic eats the ratatouille, he goes, mummy, you think about memories. Food can do that, can move you to different places. And I think oyster is the simplest form because I've done nothing to it. I use a knife, I pop it open, I give it to you. And what, what does this do? It reminds me when I was on the beach. Perfect. That's the, that's the first one. Now I can define which beach you're thinking of if you can really get to it. Sometimes people can go, this tastes more like home than this one. It really kind of is fun that way. You, uh, you also mentioned that you work uh, acquiring new and exciting oysters. Tell us a little bit about that. Who, who do you do that for? And do you try I, I work with, doing that? Is it for writing books or is it for food markets in Toronto? combination of personal stuff. Uh, I get invited to a lot of oyster festivals to uh, run oyster contests, to lecture, to talk, Oyster 101, teach people how to shuck oysters, how to taste properly. And then I find oysters as they come along. Uh, I look for them and then I work with a seafood wholesaler in the city in Toronto and Fulton Fish Market in New York City where I will say, this is a great oyster. Maybe you should put this into your profile and we'll profile it. We'll get a little uh, combination of talking about it. And one thing I, I you know, I, I'm always constantly looking for new and exciting. And, and the more I dive into it, the more there's new people growing and uh, growing a new oyster. It's the same species or whatnot, but different region, different method of growing. It's mind blowing. It's getting as deep as wine is. Wine is huge. It really blows my mind how much information and it's constantly moving around. So sommeliers have to be always upgraded and always uh, forward on their knowledge about what's going on. Same thing with oyster. When it comes to recipe and recipe building, we're still back when fire was invented. So if, if a, very few chefs will go, I'm going to put an oyster dish on my menu. And first thing I ask them is, what oyster are you thinking of? Yeah, just give me an oyster. What profile are you thinking of in the flavor range, chef? What are you thinking of? And I've done, I've told chefs, and this happens more than you would think. I put a menu together for a chef. I did one for a steakhouse in the city of Toronto. I said, you want this oyster, Green Gables oyster, printed around some perfect PEI steakhouse oyster. And it's going to be great. Two weeks later, chef calls me up, goes, Patrick, I got to get a better oyster. Why? What's wrong with the oyster chef? It's too hard to open. Uh-huh. So you, you, why? I'll teach them how to shuck oysters. No, you can't move. They can't open the, the hinge. I go, granted, the hinge can be a little bit tough, but the flavor on it, your customers will say, thank you very much. No, we're going to change it. I want to change it nice and easy. I go, okay, so who's shucking your oysters, chef? Dishwasher, he says. I go, the dishwasher. Okay, let me just get this straight, chef. Are you telling me that the dishwasher is telling you what ingredients to put on your menu? He goes, <laughs> he, told, he told me off. But I was like, so I got them a good oyster that's easy to open. I understand what their needs are. But then I take that information. I teach the growers, the oyster growers. I go, you want to sell one oyster? Find a lovely bit of water to grow in. You want to sell two oysters? Fix your shell. People these days want to make it easy. They want it clean. They want it to come in a certain way. So there's certain things you have to do. And so that's why I go into, into trade shows and industry shows and talk to both sides of the bar. 
both the restaurateur, the client, and the actual chefs, and then the growers, and sort of work on all those things. And that's what most people are doing. If you look at from Australia and down your region there, there's a group called SIPA that is creating a, a grow out tube and have done for years. So a lot of your oysters are tied tumbled in these grow out tubes close to shore. And it, I think you got one out your way in New Zealand, which is uh, a flip bag, which is fantastic. When you flip it, the tide tumbles it, the shell grows evenly on all sides. You get this nice, perfect little shell, very easy to open, which is what you want to get. Fantastic. Uh, until 2018, it said you had your, is it Seely Cottage Restaurant, an Irish restaurant in Toronto? You don't have that anymore? Kaylee. Yep. Kaylee. I don't anymore. No, it's a landlord issue. We, can, we, don't, we don't want to talk about the landlord, okay. but you know, okay. it's what happens when I talk to people, when, I, when I'm advising people about building restaurants, buy the building first. Okay. Don't go and lease. Look at what's happening right now across the globe there's going to be a 50% reduction to a 30% a 30 to 50% reduction of restaurants because of leasehold alone. Okay. And the landlords are just going to sit on it for the next couple of years because no one else is going to go into that situation. It's ridiculous. And so I've learned through many, many years, I had a beautiful 10 year stint on the Cayley cottage. People still call me today about, you know, when you open another one type of thing. So the concept is very good and I'm playing with it. So well, even you, though so you would, you'd be open, yeah. you'd be open to having another restaurant. Absolutely. I'm helping out a chef or two here in the city as it is to work on their projects and reopen once we're allowed to, which is actually Wednesday tomorrow. I don't know if we're going straight to oysters yet, but we have other things that we're going to play with as well. Okay. You're, you're also an instructor in food theory at Centennial College, and that might lead us into the actual health benefits of oysters as a yes. sustainable food source, which is what I really want to talk about. I talk, I teach a lot. I'm a yoga instructor as well as a physician and I teach cold water thermogenesis about the benefits of cold water exposure. That's what Pauline and I have been doing this week. I've been taking Pauline through some cold water training and some yoga training and part of that, a lot of that cold water experience is about, improving the health of our mitochondria and our body. And the story of the mitochondria is fascinating, which is going to lead us into the history of the oyster, because probably it was the mitochondria, the development of the mitochondria 2.5 billion years ago, where one bacteria engulfed another bacteria, which then started all other life forms on the planet, other than bacteria, until two point, from 4.5 to 2.5 billion years, there were only bacteria. Then one bacteria, one bacteria consumes another one bacteria, this becomes a mitochondria, which then starts all other plant, animal, and fungal species on the planet. And we started off in the cold oceans. So as, a, as an organism, we actually started in the cold oceans, which is why we all have the genes for the, getting the benefit of cold war exposure to yes. the mitochondria. Fast forward to 25 million years ago, where in your book, you say the science starts describing that that oysters and shellfish probably appear as, as a life form on the planet. And then we come forward, we're gonna jump forward in time. We've gone from 4.5 billion years ago to the start of the earth to 2.5 billion years ago to 3.5 billion years ago to bacteria, 2.5 billion years ago to animal species on the planet, development of mitochondria, then we come forward to 25 million years ago where oysters first appear. And then it gets really interesting when we start getting into the arrival of the hominid species, particularly 
Homo sapiens, perhaps 200,000 years ago. But I know in your book that you said, and you and I are going to talk in a minute about how oysters, a food source, had a central role in the development of us as a species. But we also know that I think you mentioned in your book that there was, when was it that oysters, you said that somebody, you fed, they found a shell where somebody had been doodling on an oyster shell. Doodle, the first doodle. If you Google 500, search, the first 500,000 years ago. Right. And the first doodle was inscribed on a, I'm trying to find the page myself, but I know the story. It was, in, it's, a, it's a zigzag pattern on a shell. And they didn't realize it back in the 1800s when they found the shell from Madagascar. I forget where exactly where it was from. It was from Africa. It was brought up. It was just put away into storage. And then when they used digital photography to photograph it, then the lines came out. They figured out that they, they, the angles on it. But they figured that this is one of the first doodles because it was an intentional drawing. It was a simple zigzag pattern. And so my thought on this is, why would a being do this? You're marking a thing that you, you like. Thank you. You're doing possibly thanking the other being that showed you how to do this, or you're doing it to impress another being. I'm trying to be as neutral as possible because I don't know what, even what you would call this type of age of person or, or being. But the, the plausibility was that they took a shark's tooth that you would find or some sharp implement, not even a flake of stone that someone's manufactured. It's a found thing, shark's tooth as an implement to open up said shell, scrape meat inside, eat. That's as simple as it is. When someone shows you that, you show back their appreciation, perhaps by doing this drawing and it's just a zigzag in here. This is what my theory is and that's one of the earliest Signs and the doctor actually, the, the 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 scientist actually said, like shucking open an oyster shell with a shark's tooth, or some sharp implement like that, and that's how it was scribed and like plausible, completely plausible. And you can see with these stories that we we find from other scientists looking at how hominids came down and they started uh, eating shellfish and brain development, and then making a drawing, and then this fire thing was invented and then let's put those rocks on the fire and see what happens. You know, it's totally plausible when you see that, that you hear the stories from all over the place. And I also remind my students as well, oysters hit everywhere ocean touches land. I have stories from everywhere except the Antarctic pretty well. And that's across the globe. So you can find these type of things, which is really, really cool. So before we started this morning, I just jotted down very quickly six reasons why I thought oysters were perhaps the most important food still today for us as a species. And I want to bum, ask bum, you about those, This is great. <laughs> and I want to ask you about some of the things that you talked about in your book. So the first one, right, they, came, they come from the sea, obviously, and us as a species perhaps didn't. But if we keep going back, as I said, 2.5 billion years ago, we came out of the cold oceans. So there is this genetic memory inside us that you, you reference in your book. So I think... We are saltwater. Yes, this beautiful marriage, this yep. memory that we have of our life in the ocean. Then number two was the, sto the stoned ape theory, where the concept was that 200,000 years ago, something resulted in an unexplainable massive explosion the size of our brain as a species, a shrinking of our gut, an unexplainable rapid development of our brain. And the theory behind that is it was the discovery of fire so that we were able to cook and free up nutrients. It was the discovery of shellfish as a food source. 
which gave us an easily obtainable, didn't have to hunt, opened with a shark tooth, as you said, source of omega-3s. And then also the theory is that our exposure to some special mushrooms opened up the neural pathways, which gave our, so we had a shrinking gut, we had an expanding brain and an expanding neural pathways with the psilocybin from mushrooms. And I mean, Canada's at the forefront now of research and psilocybin in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder and mood disorder. So the world is coming full circle, which is great. Ah, Number great. three was a huge source of omega-3 fatty acids, which most of our brain is made up of. They're a great source of easily available protein, sustainable protein. Yep. They're also a great source of organ meats. I mean, we all know now how important it is to eat organ meats. I have trouble sitting down and making a good dish out of a bit of cow liver. I'm sure you do as well. The beauty about when you eat an oyster, not only are you getting protein, but you're also getting organ meats enclosed. It's the whole thing. Beautiful thing. And it's sustainable. So I want to go through some of those things from your perspective and reference some of the things you wrote about in your I'll book. I'll add one more. Well, please. High concentration of al algae, algae, high concentration. Because that's what they eat. They eat phytoplankton and zooplankton, and that gets concentrated in the gut. And if you think about the nutrients that are in seaweeds and algaes, it's a high concentration source that just slips down, chews up, and you enjoy. You don't so know you're getting, eating. We're getting the algae when we consume the oyster. Yes. Ah, if really you cut the oyster, when you when you when you open up an oyster and there's a cut in the belly, it's a green brown or a green red substance within. And people are like, what is that? I go. Algae, man, the algae, that's what it is. Same thing with mussels, same thing with clams. You'll see oh. that when you cut that open. That's the super high concentration of that nutrient, that ocean nutrient that you just can't get anywhere else but from seaweed. Well, that's fabulous because I spend a lot of time at Byron Bay foraging wild seaweed. And I've well, produced my it's own great. line of supplements now out of real food. And they always contain marine phytoplankton because I want to get all 88 minerals. And now you've just told me that not only am I getting the, the minerals, because, you know, we all want minerals and everybody's out there buying mineral supplements out of some, you know, minerals that have been put together by some scientists in laboratory, whereas we can get all the minerals that we need from the ocean. Marine phytoplankton has been where I've been getting mine from, but now I know that I'm also getting it with oysters. So that's fabulous. Fabulous. Tell us a little bit, you talked about oyster farming, and we'll talk about that later on when we talk about sustainability, but you also mentioned that it was first recorded in Asia in 300 BC, and Romans yeah. also had oyster farms. And actually, if you look, I don't know if you can see, but if you look, because I'm in northern New South Wales, I know you can't see because of the light, but I'm looking down at an ocean inlet there, and it's all full of oyster farms. So whenever I go for a yeah. walk, I'm walking past oyster farms. So that started back, we think, in 300 BC in Asia. Is that right? That's the, the, a lot of the papers talk about how uh, fish farming uh, or the, the husbandry of fish started back then. Uh, that's the first and earliest recordings of, of ways of, of that you can see that it was done. Or fish was first, oysters came in a close second. And then Roman times, the Romans, when they moved in, sort of took over, went holidaying in, in Asia, and then came back with a lot of inf information and stuff. I think I have that drawing in the book as well of one of the earliest oyster farms, uh, Osteria, Ria, this one here. It comes from a glass vase, this is an etching on that little round thing in the back there is actually a glass vase. And you can see this etching is drawn out. And that's a depiction of an actual oyster farm. And there's units within that of rope suspended bag 
which would have held shells, which is what all of those farms around the corner are still doing to this day. So something that was developed in the Roman era, and the funny thing was the the, the person who, I forget his name offhand, I apologize, uh, who developed this method of moving oysters to a different, better area that's a little bit warmer for better growth, and they used aqueducts to warm the thing, became, he says, this is the, the method that we're going to be doing forever, didn't necessarily end up doing that, but the aqueducts and warming that area turned into, you know, heating homes. So <laughs> he did a lot of stuff, but it, his, his ideas went to other things. But the oysters and the, the way that they loved having their oysters, they would move oysters from uh, England and Ireland down to Rome and then would aquaculture them from there because they liked those oysters so much. So that's why oysters can move. If you think of the time frame a Roman person would it did take to move an oyster from England to Rome would be a long time. And so you'd have to hopscotch that into estuaries along the way. And the fun thing with the estuary and back to where humans grew in, in to colonies and whatnot, wherever they're living, is where the estuary was, where the freshwater and the saltwater meets, you can find a lot of food. So those were where mainly cities started growing, hamlets, group of four or five families, and then it just grew from there, still in the same spot. So that's even to the Romans times where they would hopscotch a two or three days away, leave the oyster, pick up the last delivery, and move it to the next one till it got to Rome. And then they would develop their, their, their idea of culturing there. The rope culture, the bag culture, the string cultured oysters is still used to this day. All throughout France, trestle oysters in Cancale and uh, Bay d'Arcachon, Miranda d'Orléans, all those areas use the same methods. And we in North America got our concept of aquaculture growth from the European model when we invaded and took over in North America. And then traveling around the world, those methods and, uh, were used uh, like all over the place. So it's kind of neat to see how it travels around the world, but it's still used to this day. Well, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm a Kiwi. I'm living in Australia at the moment, but from, I'm Nelson in New Zealand. And we took, well, I'm sitting beside somebody from Paris, France, and your Irish heritage in Canada. So we get, everybody gets around a lot. And you we do. in your book that, that uh, I'm, a, I'm in, living in a country now with a very, very old, ancient, old indigenous population. And you yes. talking that that wherever indigenous populations have been, there's been records of them consuming oysters as a food source because the piles of oyster shells, which most of New York is on, yes. So that there was there is you know record of the Aboriginal population in Australia consuming oysters as a food source. Right. It happens all over the place, and it's been doing for for thousands of years, thousands. Uh, whale back midden in Maine, United States, East Coast, is about three to 4,000 years old. And so it predates everything, and they just, they just keep throwing the shells there, and they just piled up for years and years and years. All First Nations peoples, both coasts, have use of shellfish. It's a readily, easily acquired food source, and it would be very seasonal. In North America, East Coast, we deal with a lot of ice in the winter. Well, right now, our oysters, like a Malpec oysters, you have to cut through six feet of ice to get them in the colder water, colder part of the winter, which for that species of oyster allows it to travel very well because it's learned what refrigeration is. So in the wintertime, they wouldn't be eating it, but they would 
bring the oysters up. They would smoke it, dry it, sun dry it. They knew that there was a nutritional value. I do know that there's Inuit First Nations in Baffin Island that will go under the ice in the summertime to collect mussels and clams. I have yet to find oysters, but I'm working on it. So <laughs> there are people that are still using it to this day as a, as a method of gathering food and protein source for themselves, which is fantastic. A story was shared with me last weekend, which you might find interesting. In Australia, we still have a lot of conflict around sovereignty over land for the Indigenous people. And yep. um, I was visiting an island called Majeriba or Stradbroke Island, um, Majeriba in the Indigenous language. And the Indigenous people there, of course, ate oysters. And I believe that in it's one of the places where they have been able to regain sovereignty over part of the land and they the island is community managed and um, the way that they managed to get their land claim recognized was by showing um, oyster shells that were found from a long time ago before the white settlers arrived and so just just date um, that pile over there just dig it up date it figure out your time frame and um, voila I hope I didn't get that story wrong because it is second. No, it's better. good. But it's a beautiful story and I thought I'd share it with you. Thank you. That's fantastic. I love that story. And yeah, it's, it's totally plausible that that shows that how long we have been here. We have been here a very, very long time. Yeah. And, you know, we're all here about taking care of it so that our great, great, great grandkids can do the same. And that's why the sustainability and the thought of the oyster as a protein source is one of the most sustainable proteins you can get in the animal kingdom. And even uh, as far as sustainability and, and amount of energy input, water, etc., when you're thinking about growing things as a protein source, even veg base, oyster really comes into that neutrality where you can get fabulous protein returns for very little input. And I've got a couple, there was a paper last uh, season, November, that came out that talked about, they compared the protein and CO2 emissions, greenhouse gas emissions of major protein sources, cow, pig, chicken, and oyster. Oyster came in negative. There was zero to just under uh, nothing. And then chicken was next, then pig, then beef was way up here. So, and the theory of this paper was written, the, the, the professor who did it said, if the United States would consider replacing just 10% of their beef intake with oyster, they would re uh, reduce the greenhouse gas emissions by 11 million cars a year. And so it's one of those, and they're easy to grow. Uh, the other paper that I read, which was brilliant, was uh, Namibia. Down in South Africa, they needed to raise protein for their people. What are we going to feed our people? How are we going to, they did a great analysis of, uh, different farms, different ideas of what they would grow. They came out with oyster. Oyster was the best method because ocean feeds the whole thing. You just hold the little things in one little area and a couple of year to two years later, you pull it out and you sell it and eat it. And so it worked really, really well. And so it, it was one of those early papers that I read in early 2000. And I know they've been going along since then too. So it's, it's kind of fun. It grows everywhere. Uh, but really being sustainable, ocean sustainability, but also uh, environmentally sustainable for as far as a protein source to feed our growing population. Well, I think what I loved about your book was you talked about how they don't need, you don't need to feed them when you farm them. You don't need to give them water. You don't need to give them antibiotics. You don't need electricity. And I mean, we love the idea of, I mean, there's a big controversy, I think, in Canada at the moment about farmed salmon and the problem with oh, how genetic all over the world. 
yeah, yep. genetically modifying salmon to farm, which is, you know, potentially a huge disaster if they escape and contaminate the pool of wild salmon. And we get wild salmon in Australia, thankfully, uh, from Canada, the wild frozen uh, salmon, which is a fabulous source for us. But of course, there is a problem with the farmed fish that you have to feed them and you're feeding them a not natural diet and you have to give them antibiotics because they're so crowded. Yet oyster farming doesn't have any of those problems. And would you see that as one of the great beauties about oyster farms? That's the beauty of, that's the actual technical beauty of oyster farms. It's the most environmentally sustainable farming that you can do, even in a high intensity. You're just corralling them. You're holding them into a little area and you're doing something to manipulate the shell so it will grow nicely uh, for the consumer. And it's just because you're growing it at the top of the water versus the bottom. That's why they float them. That's where the phytoplankton highly concentrates where there's more sunshine. And that's why you float your oysters at the top of the water and you just flip the, the little bags, tumbling the stuff. That's all you do. In, you, you do start oysters out in the laboratory. If you're going to be an aquaculturist, an actual farmer, you can start by breeding little oysters. You get the best of the oysters. You allow them to breed out. You let the, the, the spat set. And then you can grow and propagate algae for them to feed on for the first, like, three or four weeks to 16 weeks. And then you send them out. Bye. It's gone. Uh, and then two years later is when you get the oyster to market grade size. So it's all Mother Nature after that. And it's based on the region where you're doing it, and then the level, again, back to the flavoring, the finishing of the oyster, you can actually change the flavor finish of it, the profile, if you keep it at the top of the water, or do you keep it in the mid, or you put it down on the bottom, and back to France, where they grow uh, clair finished pool uh, oysters, where you'll get the green gilled oyster, la fin de clair verte, the green gilled oyster is where the green algae blossoms right now in the summertime, in these high tide pools, in Rin. Rendez-Orléans and other little areas where they've made this region where the algae will grow naturally in the ponds and you feed the best oysters in there, they get green gills. It looks like your leaves right behind you. So normally consumers don't look at that and go, oh, that in North America, they go, oh, green, that's going to be, it's like when blue cheese was first invented. It's like blue cheese, what's that moldy stuff? You can't eat that. No, 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 no. When the, the gourmands, they were like, no, green gill, I'll take those ones. Thank you very much. There's a couple of growers now in North America that are doing a green gilled oyster because the, naturally they can in uh, North Carolina. And uh, there's one in Prince Edward Island, one little region that I can do a PEI as well. So it's kind of neat, but really crazy, crazy flavors that you can do on it. Tell us a little bit about what you call the mermaid's tear, because when we open an oyster shell, we're not only getting an oyster. Tell us about the mermaid's tear. Well, that's the oyster liquor. The liquor is the clear liquid of the oyster itself. And it's a saline solution, much like tears. And that's what would be the, the mermaid's kiss and the mermaid's tear would be that when you're consuming it. Different people will tell you different ways of eating oysters, depending where you come from. And it's always, you know, what your grandfather or your friend told you what to do. In France, they like to tipple off. They take the little oyster. They take the oyster and they, they tip off the water that comes in when it hits the table. And they let this, the oyster sit in the, in the tray. And then the liquor will come out of the oyster itself. That's the true liquor of the oyster. What's involved with the oyster when you open it is both seawater and oyster liquor. The liquor is the clear lifeblood of the oyster. It's oxygen, it's, it's everything, it's nutrients, and it's, it suspends in the shell. I think it's all part of it, though, as well. It's that subtle nuance of the region that it comes from. You'll get a better flavor off of if you, contain, you keep it all contained. Now, when you're opening oysters, I know in our 
North America style, we have two major styles that's on the table, tabletop. So you put a, a, your oyster on the table and then you put your knife and you shuck it. That's how I do it. And then there's in the hand shucking. In the hand, you tend to lose all the liquor. It just drips through. I can contain that oyster liquor or the mermaid's tear in the tray that I work with. This is, this is my oyster tray there. So you shuck in here, little thing. And in here, you get all this water and you can pour that off. You can save that. It's perfect to season soups and you can utilize different things with it. I've gone so far as to actually make like a, a sport drink out of oyster liquor, dulse seaweed and lemon juice and a little bit of sweetener. So you think about what Gatorade is and what sport drinks are. It's a, it's a sweat replacement. It's electrolyte replacement that you lose through sweating. You can recreate that using ocean water. And the only ocean water that I can get in Toronto in a natural format is oyster liquor. And right. so I collected all the stuff. When you open that shell, the oyster is sitting in some liquid, which is a combination yep. of the oyster, true oyster liqueur, liqueur and ocean yep. water. When I buy oysters in a restaurant or even on a tray in a fish shop, they're really in the shell, not sitting in anything. Obviously, that, that water has been spilled out. Is there any way that I can get that water back? Your, now, your style of oyster shucking in Australia, New Zealand, is very specific to that region. And I do not know why or the history of, but I do know the technique. And it's you, you shuck, most oysters are shucked in a, it's a shucking house. It's a, it's a business, it's a plant that specifically only does oysters and they put it into a tray and the tray is then sent to the restaurant. The restaurant just takes it off, puts it on a plate and off you go. If you YouTube any of them, you can see their style of shucking where they pop the hinge, they flip the oyster and they rinse it underwater. They get the whole thing rinsed underwater so that it's free of grit. But it also then, it's tap water. The yeah. tap is on, they put it under the tap water, off you go. You've lost for me, you've lost most of the subtle nuances of where the region that it comes from. But it's just how it's been done for hundreds of years. And they pack them up into these little trays and off they go. And that's why there'll always be this uh, sort of neutrality within the, the, the flavor. Now, if you can find a restaurant that fresh shucks the oyster there and puts it on a plate, not flipped, then you can tell that it's not been run underwater. This goes back to the days of Paris and why in Paris, they do not shuck oysters and sever from the bottom shell. When you go to Paris and have oysters, it's still attached to the bottom shell. The reason that is, is back in the early 1800s when tins, when, when oyster tins, do I have one here? Oh, it's at work. Uh, oysters were tinned. They were shucked at the ocean, put into a tin, sealed up, put on a train, went to Paris, and you would put them on an oyster plate. The plate was nice because the bourgeois, they had these lovely gloves. They had little oyster forks. They picked them up and eat like this. No shell because they're dirty muddy. But it had this tinny flavor. So consumers kept asking the restaurateurs saying, this tastes too tinny. We need fresher oysters. So he would, the restaurateur, who was a smart one, would take the shell and take the oyster out of the bucket, out of the tin, put it into the shell. Here you go, fresh oyster. They go, no, 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 no. We need proof that it is freshly opened either you and now they they open in the street they open in front of you but when it's done in the kitchen they had to leave it attached to the bottom shell the only method that you can prove the oyster is fresh is when it's attached to the bottom shell which is why in paris to this day your oysters will still be stuck to the bottom shell now i had parisian folks who come into my restaurant starfish and they said you know we've had a great dinner but i just want to tell you your oysters are loose in the shell, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I went, oh, 
and I heard their accent. I go, oh, are you from Paris? Yeah. Okay, two seconds. Went back, got the same oyster. Shuck top on, left it, put it on a plate, couple of forks, and they take their fork like, oh, it's so, it's stuck. Oh, this is the best, the best, the best. And so they, it depends on the culture that you come from and how you do it. So I have to find out in Australia who was the first one that said, this is how we're going to do it. And it might have actually been even a public health situation where grit, sand, mud, wash it all off, and then you can serve it. And they just leave the top on and they run it under the sink, then they flip it and they put it on the train, off you go. That's why you lose the subtle nuances of the flavor. Right. So if you've got an Australian or a New Zealander coming to your restaurant, they'd be complaining that you've got ocean water. You haven't washed your oysters properly because they're sitting in ocean water and you get complaints. But we are losing a lot of the magic when we do that. It's where you come from. And yeah. I will always ask the stories, you know, down in the Southern States, their people eat their oysters on crackers. They actually asked for an oyster cracker, which is a saltine square salt, plain bland soup cracker. And I'm like, where I, when I go, I go to the masters and I'm shucking it way to the golf thing. You know, it's down in, in the uh, Southern States there. And they, they go, yeah, I need to have crackers. Where are the cracker? I'm like, where do you live? And why did you put oyster on a cracker? It's in a shell. Well, I got to take it out of the shell, put it on the cracker. That's what my grandfather told me. I went, okay, so don't argue with grandpa, but why, you know, you're going to lose a lot of stuff. And then he puts sauce on it and everything just goes crazy. But oyster crackers is a thing in the Southern States. It's not so anywhere else in the world. So there's no, everywhere's got a different little story. And I always find it mostly fascinating of, of how and where did we get to that point? Hmm. Can you, can you run us or can you run people listening through the difference between zooplankton and phytoplankton? and depths and how that too will not only geographical where the oyster comes from and has grown, but also the depth that it grows and also changes the taste. Can you run us through the difference between zooplankton and phytoplankton? Sure. Phytoplankton, vegetable. Zooplankton, zoo is a animal. Right. That's it. That's, that's as simple as I can get. So phytoplankton, veg base, they tend to rise to the top because they have to get that uh, sunlight for the chlor uh, chlorophyll to do all the their energy transfer. So they have to be more at the top. And the zooplankton can be lower in the water column. And it's a I've I've heard stories different depths or whatnot. But I had one oyster grower that would change the depths by five meters down is a higher concentration of phytoplankton, and five meters lower is zooplankton. They will be everywhere, but your concentrations will be where they're where they need to be. Mother Nature organized it that way. So phytoplankton being vegetable base will have more of a vegetable flavor. And that's the concentration of algae that you'll get in the gut of the oyster and really flavor off that oyster. Zooplankton will come off with more not I'm not it's not even meaty, it's it's steely clean. So where iodine and blood has a, a an iron like flavor to it it's not even that close it's the furthest you can think of but it has a, a bit of a cleaner finish to it uh, as far as the zooplankton goes i find a lot of the pacific oysters which is the same style of oyster that you have where you're at will come off with that uh, vegetal finish to it and so I, I usually explain it as an ocean sea salt up front sweet cream melon and cucumber melon is a melon rind. If you're eating watermelon, past the pink into the white, that's a vegetal melon flavor. And then cucumbers, very specifically cucumber. And that really comes from A, the species, and B, those nutrients of where it's growing and the phytoplankton that it's feeding on. So that's the, the main differences between the two.
Okay. Well, now I have to add art. Part of my passion in medicine is, you know, the, the combinations or how science is now validating a lot of traditional health practices. So I, I talk about the marriage of science and tradition. Now I have to weave art in there. And one of the things I've been talking a lot about lately is because it's so topical at the moment is the immune system. And we talked about how oysters are a great source of minerals, particularly zinc. And I think, and can you talk a little bit about zinc and, and maybe reference how zinc might be the link to oysters and aphrodisiacs and maybe talk about uh, with oysters also. I mean, critical for your immune system is vitamin A, zinc, and vitamin D. Now we know oysters are hugely high in zinc yeah. Also high highest amount of vitamin A. Highest amount of zinc. Yep. Yeah. In any natural yeah. food source. So it's it's one of the best sources of natural zinc that you can find. Zinc not only critical for your immune system, also critical for your skin, for your neurotransmitters in your brain, your immune system growth. Tell us a little bit about the, the aphrodisiac link. And then before actually before you go into the aphrodisiac link, can you tell us a little bit about what do we know about vitamin D? And because we know that cod liver oil is a as a traditional source of vitamin D, particularly for indigenous populations, and particularly the indigenous in your area of the world, who for long parts of winter get no sunlight, yeah. and learnt not only to get vitamin A from their uh, seafood, but also vitamin D by consuming the liver. Now, I haven't looked at the data on this, but I imagine that because you're consuming the liver inside the oyster when you're consuming it that would also be a good source of vitamin D. So talk to us a little bit about vitamin D and then zinc and aphrodisiacs. I don't know D as much as I do the zinc and the other aspect of it, but that's totally plausible, except for the fact that I don't think that the liver and the structure and the physiology of oysters, the same area as say fish with the blood source that they have. So that might have an actual higher amount of vitamin D, but it is all in there. So there is a, a, a certain form of it. And the micronutrients that you can get out of the shellfish is just one of those things that you just can't get from anything else. And the, the highest amount of zinc in any natural food source and the zinc helps release what's what I say is uh, softly is it helps drive the libido by releasing testosterone in the body, of both male and female. We both carry testosterone, else uh, most say will we'll help drive the libido or the sex drive, uh, and it, it, re, it boosts your immunity as well. And back to evolution, those who are healthiest, the most immune strongest, got to reproduce and breed. You know, that's how we got here. So the more oysters you get, the more bigger the brain, the, the more you were ready and more healthy you were. So it was one of those things that have just been going on for, for millennia. And so I, I, you know, Valentine's Day is one of the busiest days ever in the oyster bar <laughs> world. It's, it's bigger than putting Christmas and New Year's together in one day wow. with your birthday and your anniversary. I would, I would, I would seat my restaurant four times. Starfish was a, six, a 70 seat restaurant and I would seat that four times on Valentine's Day and I would have your, the boys would always be calling, Patrick, I need a reservation, right? For what day? Oh, the 14th. I go, oh, let me see the 14th. Let me look at the, oh, it looks very busy. What day? What day is the 14th? There's a, yeah, Valentine. Oh, Valentine's Day. Yeah, no, that was booked like a month and a half ago. If you want a romantic day, you go out on the 13th or the 15th. Do not touch the 14th. It is a machine. You're coming in, you're an hour and 15 minutes and you're out. That's it. I'll get you your food and out you go because it's busy, busy. And it is kind of ridiculous. And everyone has that idea. Oysters will start with some champagne and maybe some lobster and 
hopefully get lucky. We don't work magic here, kids. We just get you the oysters. <laughs> so, you uh, know, yeah, and uh, when I talk about aphrodisiac, it's, it is what floats your boat. So if you, if you don't like chocolate, it's not going to be an aphrodisiac for you. Same thing with oyster. But there is some science behind it. And that's why we try to play into the science end of it. Now I've got, now I've got science, tradition, art, and romance to meld into my stories, which is really good. <laughs> okay, I've got one more controversy, and then we're going to go out on a blast. I just want to talk about, which I don't think is a controversy, you don't think is a controversy, but it's one which follows seafood around, and particularly shellfish. And they're, they're seen as bottom-dwelling scum suckers. Ah, yes. I love that one. Like heavy metals. Now you that one in the months without an R. That they're not bottom-dwelling, nor are they scum suckers. And it's this whole concept about liver as well, that people don't want to eat liver because they think it's a full of toxins. It's a filter. And it's not. Yeah. It's not. And from, from a liver perspective, the liver is where you process toxins. You take a fat-soluble toxin and you convert it to water-soluble toxin so you can excrete it. So it's not store, liver is not a store of toxins. The fat is a store of a toxin. So that's why I wanted to get people away from thinking about liver was full of toxins. It's a processing plant. Now, an oyster similarly, and I want you to talk about this, it's not bottom dwelling. Yeah. And yes, it does. Yeah. It is a great service to the world because it cleans water, but it also it doesn't store. If it, I mean, you tell us how many gallons of water it pumps through in a day or something. I'm sure you'll have those figures. If it stored all the toxicity and the heavy metals, in itself, it'd be it'd be the size of a it a, a whale, and but it, it 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 keeps the good stuff for itself, and it, it gets rid of the bad stuff. So tell us a little bit how our oyster works in terms of uh, being a filter and toxins, and how it prevents all that toxicity building up in itself. The oyster itself regenerates basically the the cell structure regenerates so quickly. It can, if it has toxins come into it, now we, we can consume everything that the oyster can. The oyster does not hold toxins in its, in its body. Uh, there's a red algae, which is toxic to humans, and it's called red tide. It happens all around the world, and it happens when there's too much nitrogen in the system, mostly from effluence from the land coming into the ocean, and boom, red tide bloom. Oysters get into it. Uh, they eat it. They consume it. They think it's fine. 24 to 48 hours is all it takes to put the oyster in fresh, clean water. It'll flush out all of the toxins within that time frame, and you can consume it afterwards. That's why there's something called depuration. A lot of times, no matter in the different regions, oysters will come with a little tag saying depurated, which means even though they're growing it in great water, they want to put it in a super clean water because your public health people are going, we got to make sure that if you're eating it raw, it's as clean as possible. That being said, oysters, I always get this all the time, they're a bottom feeder. No, naturally, they do live on the bottom. However, they do not eat carrion like other opportunistic creatures do, fish, lobsters, crabs, right? Oysters are filter feeders. They filter only phytoplankton and zooplankton. They live at the top of the water by the farming or where they attach themselves in the intertidal zone. That's where they live mostly. Now, there's oysters down in uh, southern New Zealand a bluff oyster, which is the native oyster to that area, 40 foot of water. That's not seeing the light of day at any time. Uh, so it's kind of a neat, different thing that I haven't got the full taxonomy on, but fantastic stuff. Uh, but mostly oysters are in their tidal. So the tide goes out. That's why they close up. And when they close up, they hold on to whatever they're doing. They go to the restaurant. Three days later, you open it up. It's still the same thing because they've, over millions of years, they've evolved to hold on nice and tight when the, when the, when the water leaves. 
So it is an, in an area where they just filter. They filter feed uh, 13 liters of water an hour when the water's in. Then they close up and they don't do anything. They actually drop their metabolism rate down to zero, especially in the colder weather here in North America East Coast, so that they actually don't even atrophy. That's why our oysters can live about four weeks out of water when you put them in a fridge and you travel around the world or wherever. They'll be great for that much time. You don't want to let them sit for four weeks, but it can be done. Um, so filter feeding, they really only filter out the phytoplankton, zooplankton. They're very persnickety. The way they do it, they have gills like a fish, so that's where they get extract the oxygen. But they have scylla, and if you look on the outer mantle of the oyster, there's little fi fine little hairs that they capture the, the phytoplankton they want, and they move it down to the stomach, which is down at the bottom near the hinge, and they store it in a high concentration to process it there. Um, so they do select what they're going to eat in the ocean and it just comes and goes as the next tide comes in whoop, they open up and they do their little oyster thing the filtering part that they're doing is if the phytoplankton and zooplankton were left unchecked the oyster the water goes cloudy when the water's cloudy no sunlight can hit the bottom and ocean plants cannot grow at that point that's what they're filtering out is the high intensity planktons that are in the water other things you know we're going to talk forever about heavy metals and microplastics and which are unfortunately everywhere. Um, but that's what they survive on is the actual nutrients of the, of the algae. And that's, so they're not uh, bottom feeders. Yeah. A lot of people think that they don't want to eat anything that that's a bottom feeder. Lobster technically is, is opportunistic. Right. They will eat live. They'll eat each other. They will eat dead things. They'll eat whatever they can bump into. So lobsters around that, and same with crabs. And oysters are surprisingly low in mercury. When I check the data, it's not a big source yeah. of mercury. No, it's but a it's a lot of it. I watched your Instagram feed the other day, watching you barbecue some oysters. So I want to talk about <laughs> eating them. And sure. I'm sitting in front of my green bean smoker, and I just great. I love smoking. So I want to talk to you a little bit about smoking oysters, but I know that you, Fabulous. the best way to eat an oyster, putting sauce on it is sacrilege. And you think just eating straight. So I even see you say putting lemon juice. I have mine with the Australian finger lime with a little finger lines. Woo. Wicked. Little, those little jewel like sitting little, yeah, they, Beautiful. The oyster and the little jewels burst in your mouth. That's yeah. Not yeah, yeah. Having them. Fabulous. Uh, talk to us a little bit about, well, you, you think straight out of the shell on its own is best because of the subtle nuances of the flavor, I understand. But because I'm a passionate smoker, tell me a little bit about uh, smoking oysters. I, I haven't done it love, yet. Do you do it very Love very smoking. Long? Love smoking everything. Uh, Kaylee Cottage, I would bring in Irish turf. So have you been, have you been to Ireland before? You will. No. No, I haven't actually. Okay. In Ireland, Scotland, and England, especially Scotland and Ireland, they have what's called turf, which is peat. So a smoky scotch like Lagavulin from Isla has got a smoke that's indicative only of that region because that's the fuel source they use to dry the barley. That smoke, I would bring in turf to my Irish bar and I would burn it in the restaurant just to give us the incense and the smell. The, lo the Irish people went batty because they're like, this smells like home. And what I teach my students all the time, the olfactory, the nose will give you a better description of a region and a flavor or what's cooking or what your restaurant's going to be all about. So your restaurant has to smell great. I wanted mine to smell like an Irish place. So I, I used turf and I would bring this in and I go, let's smoke with this. I did smoked salmon. I did smoked oysters. Now to smoke oysters 
because they're a little wet creature type of thing as well, it's important to sort of dry them out a little bit. And if you can, put them on a really fine grid so they won't fall through. But sort of do the same thing. Put it in the coldest point of the smoker. I do something that's actually really kind of cool. If you take oysters, something in a tray, something like this, right? Yep. You put the oysters all around. You put, you know, the smoking gun? There's little machines and, and, and chefs will use a dome and they'll inject smoke into a dome. Fresh shucked oysters, smoke dome over top, take it to the table and release the dome. The smoke goes and the oysters have got a little kiss of smoke. Still eat it on the half shell and they're just smell, have the subtle taste of the smoke and then the cool flavor of a half shell oyster. If you want to go further and smoke your oysters, then I would dry them off a little bit, put them on the little grid, put them at the top part or the coolest part of the smoker and just let that smoke do its thing. You're going to have to turn it over a couple times though as well. If I, I was doing it on tinfoil once because they're going to fall through the grate, it's all I had, then you have to flip them over because the top side would become orange or dark yellow with the smoke. You want to even that out. They will atrophy. They'll shrink down a bit. So you want to get something that's a little bit bigger. You want to get a bigger oyster if you can and just start you know, playing around with your timing of what you want to do. Save the shell because then you can put that smoked oyster back in the shell and away you go. The other thing that I did was I put it in a little bit of uh, oil, neutral, uh, rapeseed oil. You can do an olive oil if you want, but sometimes olive oil over flavors it. And then you'd have a preserved smoked oyster like you do get them out of a can, but do it yourself in a mason jar. I think it's great. It's a great idea. You should do it. And Shakopee's favorite wood to smoke oysters in? Regionally, you can do a whole bunch of different things. Uh, Texas barbecue is post oak. Canada, maple. Hickory has got a nice flavor. Mesquite is a little bit earthy, I think. Mesquite is more, if you're going to do something Mex, Mexican, Tex-Mex type of thing with tequila, whatnot, smoke with mesquite. And then I play with the Irish turf uh, whenever you can get it. I, I, I have to know, I know a guy in Boston that can get a little bit of turf, little, you know, it's a little sideline thing on the side. What do you, what do you usually smoke with? Uh, hickory. And I like cherry. Cherry Hickory's and apple. Yeah, like fruit, fruit. Yeah. Yep. Okay, let's finish off regionally because sitting here with a Kiwi in Australia, a Parisian here in Australia, and Pauline's sister is a top chef in Paris. You're right in Ireland in Canada. I go to New Zealand a lot. I love Wanaka. I teach wilderness survival courses in Wanaka, and I love skiing in Wanaka. And I think the Bluff Oyster in Tempura Beta is just one of the world's great... Wow. So tell me a little bit about bluff oysters and then tell us about what, what oysters we should be looking for in Paris and what oysters we should be looking for in Toronto and what oysters we should be looking for in Ireland to take us home on a geographical bent. Great. Bluff oysters, New Zealand. Uh, and you've got the, the, some of the greatest wines to go with it as well. You know, you got your Sauvignon Blancs down there that are absolutely indicative and perfect to go with it. Great. Bluff oyster being, I have not experienced it's a bluff oyster myself, but I understand from the depth that it comes in, it's very, very seasonal. And that's the one thing that you should really play into. Same sort of species region of the Parisian Ballon oysters, uh, where they have a specific season. And that goes straight through to the Galway and the Irish. It's a native European species. Ostera edulis is the species name, which in the months without an R, May, June, July, and August, they are in their reproduction cycle. They hold their young in their gills. And I think the bluff oyster does something along the same thing. Um, where they'll hold the young and the gill and they come from such a great depth that then when the season opens up, it becomes that special thing and then you should have it all the time and then drink it with regional wines. 
uh, although I have been really doing a great job with, with matching uh, whiskeys, regional whiskeys with regional oysters. And that's another thing we can talk about altogether. Uh, so uh, Bluff Oysters down, you go right to the absolute bottom. There is a little restaurant, I think it's called the Bluff Oyster <laughs> restaurant down at the bottom of New Zealand. You can, you can enjoy those there. They fish them right out of the, right out of the waters there. You're going up to you, Paris. You, had, um, you said you haven't had them yet though. Okay, I haven't been there, no. Again, I'll meet you there. Uh, let's go. I'm, I'm on the plane in 10. I'll just head up to the airport. There's nobody there. Like, I'll just yeah, yeah. hijack a plane. We'll be fine. <laughs> All right, take us, I'll through, be uh, a couple take, take us through Paris and oysters. What are we looking for? Paris. Uh, uh, Montparnasse, there's three places that you can go to. It's La Coupole. Uh, it's uh, Le Dome. And uh, a bar Oswitra. Fabulous spots to go to. Uh, one of my best friends from Paris, Xavier, he's got a simple little boat that I, I'd have to get you to find. He'll find you the place. But he's a he's three-time world champion. Uh, but totally extraordinary uh, fella that he'll take you around. But when you're there, you have to have a Gillardeau oyster. That's a name brand. House of Gillardeau creates a uh, Special de Claire that is uh, fantastic. And a lot of people, everyone will know it. Um, and if you go to those places, I, I imported them once to Toronto and they were stupendous. Uh, so those, that's what you want to do when you go to Paris and also, you know, go see all the lovely things and uh, drinking Chablis. Oh, and you got to go to, to Rungus Market at three in the morning. So Rungus Market is near the airport, Orly, and that's where the big market is. And that's where all the oysters and fish and flowers and everything goes and gets exported around the world. And so you go there and by three in the morning, they finished unloading all the oysters and all the fish and they're setting up and the fishmongers are all there sipping their muscadet and having some stuff. So that's what you want to do at three in the morning. And then you'll do other things throughout the day. And then when you go to Ireland, uh, specifically, you have to go to Morns of the Weir in Clarenbridge that's just south of Galway, right on the West Coast. And it's a 15 minute tractor ride from the Kelly's oysters where you'll get both the native oysters and the rock oysters. In France, you would call them ballon, plat, oyster, and the quiz, the cupped oyster. So those are the two major species in Europe as it is. And Kelly's grow both of those as well. My good friends, the, the Hardy's, the Hardy oysters are grown down uh, just south of Dublin. Fabulous stuff that, that are there up in Donegal. You can get oysters all around Ireland, which is fantastic. And a little place called Claw, K-L-A-W, in, in Dublin. Shelburne Hotel as well. Ooh, in King Citric. Don't, don't, anyways, we'll go, we'll go on forever on, on where to go and stuff like that. And then I get my list out. And what about Toronto? What I've done, uh, Toronto, you have to, you have to go to Rodney's Oyster House. When you come here, you go to Rodney's Oyster House. That's where I, I started working oysters the most back in the late 1900s, early, early 1990s. 1992 is when I started there. Worked there for eight and a half years and then I built my own places. Uh, but Rodney's is probably the best place to go to. Greatest variety, oldest, longest, and great place to go. Down in the States, New York, you want to go to uh, Grand Central. Uh, Boston, you got to go to Union. There's, there's Mecca's. It's in the book that I can I recommend the places to go. There's always new ones coming up, but showcasing the history is also a lot of fun as well. All right, Patty. Well, with the world under such stress at the moment and so much conflict, I've been talking a lot and writing a lot about having gratitude and just being grateful for what we do have and wanting the world to move in a, in a better way direction and connecting with nature is part of that and also having gratitude so I just wanted to say how grateful Pauline and I are today for you and your time and your knowledge it's been amazing and 
And how, how can we help support you? I mean, I can't recommend your book, The Oyster Companion, a field guide enough. I think, as I said, it's not just about oysters. It's about art and poetry and history as well. On Instagram, and I've been really enjoying your feed, your Shaka Paddy. Where else can people catch up with you and support you and your work? Well, shuckerpatty.ca is the website, uh, and I will be continually adding to that. Uh, I just finished some things. I did a Google, there's a, two Google Maps that I've done, and they're publicly, I don't know how people can find them, but I'll, I'll make them available. I have them available through the website of pretty well, as far as I can find on the interweb, every oyster farm and every oyster bar restaurant that does handle oysters throughout the globe. So you can really get a good sort of a neat when you look at it expanded, it's crazy. There's blue dots all over the thing that you focus in the region that you're going to, you can find great stuff. But I, I also thank you for, for finding this and wanting to listen to the crazy stories and all works. And it's always about bringing it back to nature. I always think whenever I do a contest, I think first the farmers, the people who actually work the water and work it to the point that, that it keeps it sustainable for next generations to come. And that's what I really like to promote the most is the sustainability and how oyster can be one of those perfect proteins that you can put in pretty well any diet that you can think of and just bring it back to nature as much as possible. I really appreciate what you're doing. Like I've, I've seen a number of your videos now and they're, they, they make sense. And I, I, it makes sense to me because I have that, that science, quasi-science background that I understand these things. So thank you for what you're doing. All right. Thank you. Well, Pauline, and I are going to go uh, walk past some oyster farms, go down to the beach, do some yoga. Tell them I say hi. Get in some cold <laughs> water. So thank you so much for your time and enjoy your beautiful Toronto and Canadian summer. Thanks very much. We'll see you soon.